Hello and welcome to All Tamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And as we record this episode, there is a significant and concerning escalation of the Russia-Ukraine war, with a debilitated Putin becoming more dangerous by the day. In the past weeks and days, we've seen Ukraine deal strategic blows, taking away miles of territory of previously conquered areas which Russian military were in, and Russia retaliating with missiles launched at civilians in the center of Kiev with pictures of thousands of civilians thronging in subway stations throughout Ukraine's capital. And meanwhile, the world continues to take sides. Saudi Arabia is cozying up to Russia, forcing the United States, Europe, and China to reassess their Middle East positions. India and China, two Russia sympathizers who had remained largely quiet, calling for de-escalation and dialogue, even to Putin's face, as Modi did. As the situation becomes more and more dire, the U.S. issues stark warnings and threats, while Europe reinforces its tactical support for Ukraine. So we have an escalating mess. And today, what we're going to do is to zoom in on the principal Western European player of this geopolitical map, Germany. Berlin has at times seemed reluctant, at times it seemed enthusiastic about supporting Ukraine, and all of which has placed it at an important crossroads, a crossroads domestically, a crossroads internationally, a crossroads economically. And our guest, Dr. Liana Fix, will help us understand Germany's role, the risks it faced, and the vulnerable position that Chancellor Scholz is in. It's really interesting, Peter, that we're talking about Germany almost as an afterthought after everything that's happening. But we do promise our readers, our listeners, sorry, that Germany is the topic of this podcast. It's just under uh, a tremendous, tremendous quagmire. It's deep into this conflict. Every day there's news about multiple aggressions that are happening at once to Germany, from a cyber attack on its government information system, which resulted in the firing of the country's cybersecurity chief among suspicions of spying for Russia, to the recent attacks on the Nord Stream pipeline, which everyone agreed was an act of sabotage. Of course, nobody named the most obvious suspect except maybe Ukraine. A German diplomatic building in Kiev was targeted and damaged by Russian forces, and Germany's famously punctual rail service was cut off mysteriously in several locations. So the list goes on, and Germany is squarely being targeted. The the changes in in Germany since the war have just been head-spinning. Yes, there is a lot of legitimate criticism in Germany. All you got to do is Google the rants of Ukraine's ambassador in Berlin about how Germany is not doing enough and needs to do more. But it's also true that much has changed in Berlin's attitudes toward Russia. Much has been written about the causes of Berlin's soft approach towards Moscow. Remember that Germany's engagement of Russia and the former communist bloc began all the way back in the 1970s. Germany's export interests, a latent Russophilia, and some governing circles all played a role in the success of what Germans called Ostpolitik, the opening and placating of Russia. And the Nord Stream pipeline today epitomizes German geopolitical and strategic thought. Let's connect more and more with Russia because it's going to benefit 
us and our economy. Well, let's fast forward today. Russia invades Ukraine and Germany is suddenly faced with a brand new reality, a Russia that's aggressive and has launched the first European war since 1945. Germany, importantly, canceled the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, leading Russia to retaliate by slowing gas deliveries to a bare minimum. Germany's vulnerability to Russia is now visible for everybody to see in the long, hard winter that it's going to face. All of Europe's going to face, but perhaps Germany more than anybody else. But Mooney, where, where I think the controversy lies is in the degree of military aid to Ukraine, which totals 1.2 billion euros as of mid-August, according to data tracked by German-based Institute for the World Economy. And that's not commensurate with the country, its size, and wealth. Because if you look by comparison, the U.S. has so far committed some 25 billion euro in military assistance to Ukraine. So the question is, why is Germany not? doing more because it's doing more for germany you know what i really find schultz's response to be very very interesting if it's been controversial in in around europe but he has kind of pledged to his people a return to germany first and yes he's the rich you know the rich player in europe and he's promising to send air support to Zelensky, and he continues to speak loudly in the eu he is also, though, taking serious contingency measures for his own people. He's creating a gas fund, building contingencies for, for Germany with Spain, skipping France on a new pipeline, all the while talking the EU leader, most powerful country talk. His style is really creating waves in the union, which of course needs Germany for leadership and money, but now feels that this leadership is kind of lacking and self-serving. So this is time to hear from Thea, who will focus on the social justice aspect of Germany's approach to this conflict. Hi, I'm Thea Ivanovich, and this is Thea's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And today it will be social justice issues and some of my favorite things, which is uncovering dark business interests. I just love this. Um, so the sentence that struck me today, Peter, you, you were saying much has been written about the causes of Berlin's soft approach towards Moscow, which includes the country's business interests, the legacy of Ostpolitik, and the Germans' left Russophilia. So you talked about Ostpolitik a bit, and I want to take a closer look at the first part, the country's business interests. And I always laugh at how surprised we are when reporters expose politicians' ties with dark business interests. And then those politicians end up proving their loyalties to these businesses through political action. I mean, really shocking, right? And that's sarcasm in, in case you didn't get that. So let me say it. I don't think we should be surprised at all at Germany's reluctance to get more involved in this conflict. And Germany's ties with Russia indeed go way back and they go way deep as well. And most public, of course, is the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who was chancellor for nearly a decade in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And Schutter was on the board of Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft since 2017. 
heads the shareholder committee at Nord Stream AG, which operates the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. And he chairs the board of directors at Nord Stream 2 AG, which is a second pipeline project. So he's also publicly known as German businessman Matthias Warnick's ties, who's on the same oil company's board for years. And that's just where it starts. I mean, there's so many other Germans who have already a strong presence in the Russian business world. And several German executives have found jobs in Russia after holding top posts in major German corporations. And Russia's state railway company also has a German in their board of directors. Harmit Midorn, a close friend of former Chancellor Schroeder and a former chief of Germany's Deutsche Bahn, the highway, joined the board in 2011. A former president of the German Central Bank also works in Russia. I mean, should I keep going? I guess I I think it's pretty clear that what once was Ostpolitik or Germany's outreach to the East has morphed into a very deep quote-unquote, change through trade with Russia that has just layered from top to bottom in Germany's private sector. And of course, I'm not exposing these ties right now to you. They've been much talked about over the years, but it really seems like now may be a good time for Germany's politicians to truly examine the cost of these personal enrichment schemes of much of its executives and leaders. So curious what you think about that. Tweet at Altimer Podcast and let me know. Yeah, you're asking a lot of tough questions and they're all the right questions to ask. And as you say, a lot of this stuff has been out in the open, but now more than ever, you got to ask yourself the question, how much did this personal enrichment of a lot of Germany's former politicians actually drive Germany's foreign policy? And, you know, all of that coming together in this big bag of multiple crossfires that, that seems to be just forcing change in domestic policy, foreign policy, economic policy. And I think Schultz has done a pretty damn good job at navigating what is can be only called a minefield. And Russia's invasion has created a completely new European reality. Can you even fathom, Thea, predicting just a year ago that Finland and Sweden would join NATO? So, you know, even with all of the sort of... In, enrichment mess and foreign policy and what's going to happen with Ostpolitik, you got to say that Schultz is a pretty skilled leader navigating a very tight spot. So let's bring in our guests to answer some of these questions that we've been asking. Dr. Liana Fix is a fellow for Europe at the Council of Foreign Relations. She's a historian and a political scientist, former resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund and former program director at the Kerber Institute Foundation in Berlin. Her work has focused on Russia and Eastern Europe, European security, arms control, and in particular on German foreign policy. She's published widely in academia, in think tanks, and national and international media and holds a doctorate degree from the Justus Leibig University in Gießen. Liana, welcome to Altamar. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's just ask the broadest question first and we'll go, we'll go from there. And I mean, it seems that Germany is sort of in the middle of multiple conflicts, multiple crossroads from a geopolitical one in the EU to, on, to many on a national level. Can you break down a little bit all the tensions facing Chancellor Olaf Schulz today? 
Absolutely. And I try to be quick, although there are a lot of them. Um, if we start from the bottom to the top, on the bottom, we have the domestic level, where Chancellor Olaf Scholz is for the first time in Germany's history in a three-party coalition. So he has two other parties, the Greens and the Liberals, he has to coordinate with for foreign policy and also domestic policy. And that's not always easy when it comes to nuclear energy or to Ukraine, to the Ukraine war. Then obviously Germany on the domestic level has a huge energy crisis at the moment because of its self-inflicted dependence on Russian gas in the past decade. If we look further on the European level, Scholz has always been a convinced European. But the war in, against Ukraine really requires Europe now to step up. Europe needs to show solidarity among its members when it comes to energy, but also when it comes to defense. Poland and the Baltic states obviously want Germany and France to invest heavily in their defense capabilities. And then on the broader geopolitical level, Germany is, um, uh, had for decades a policy of a dialogue with Russia and China. And now Russia and China have become the main adversaries of the Western, of the liberal order. And Germany has to rethink the entire model of its economic and foreign relations. And yet the, the chancellor is going to China next week or in the coming few weeks, isn't he? He is, absolutely. And it will be interesting to see whether he changes anything in the way how Merkel went to China. Merkel's trips to China were always um, business trips. She took a huge delegation with her. She was also more hesitant than Scholz was um, in criticizing China for its human rights records. Um, so this trip to Beijing will be a test whether Germany has learned the lessons from its Russia mistakes, that too much dependence on one country can easily get you into a situation where you can be politically blackmailed, or whether Germany tries to sort of cash the gains of its past China policy until it's not possible anymore. So I I just want to stay on Schultz because he I find him a fascinating figure. You know, he he sort of a, the reluctant uh leader suddenly pushed into a, a situation which has been so difficult. And I, I have to admit a grudging admiration at his job in navigating these multiple different cross currents. And are you surprised by his dexterity? Uh, tell us a little bit more about him. Well, the funny thing is, many say that Scholz was elected because he resembled so much Angela Merkel. And he himself was making fun of that. I mean, sometimes the famous hand gestures that Angela Merkel was using um, uh, were also alluded to with to Olaf Scholz, because what they have in common is a sort of a deep stoicism. So they will never... Um, become loud politicians. They will never become politicians like Boris Johnson, for instance, um, who will uh, be overactive, who will be um, pushing the news. They always try to react in a calm and in a very rational way to outside developments. So Schultz's background is interesting because for a long time he was the mayor of Hamburg, a northern German city, a big northern German city which is known for being um, very into trade because of its part, and which is known for being for having habitants which are sort of very calm, 
very stoic when it comes to international or even to national crises. And this background as a mayor of Hamburg, as a finance minister that he has been for a long time, Angela Merkel, is shaping his approach today. And what is also interesting is that Angela Merkel has taken Olaf Scholz with her once it was clear that he would become the new chancellor to her most important meetings with foreign leaders. So she was basically introducing him as her successor, um, a transition of power that we do not see in many countries of the world, and which also shows how important consensus is in Germany. So it seemed like it was um, going to be a smooth transition, uh, and yet nobody could anticipate this uh, Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all the geopolitical implication. How has German foreign policy changed since this happened? And then what would you th say to critics who say Berlin has not sufficiently committed enough to Kiev? Yes, so we had this very big speech by Olaf Scholz three days at the outbreak of the war. And one has to admit that no one in Germany really expected Russia to take this step. There was a belief that Germany knows Russia well and that it is not in the rational interest of Russia to go that far. But after the shock settled, this speech announced basically a complete turnaround in Germany's energy policy, in Germany's security policy, and in Germany's Russia policy. Olaf Scholz said, Germany will stop rely on Russian energy, we will increase our defense spending, and we will stop our policy of dialogue with Russia in the past. It was a huge shift, but the question that you've asked, has this been enough, is still not answered. Germany is delivering substantial aid to Ukraine. But some allies criticize Germany that it is part of the group. It is running with the group. It is not too far ahead, not too far behind, but it is not assuming the leadership role that it should have in Europe. What is interesting, too, is that, of course, Schultz has to uh, cater to his own people and, and more specifically about some uh, inroads of opposition parties on, on his coalition. So he has had to face domestic policy. There was an interesting piece by political uh, talking about how he gave a very Germany first set of speeches and that is looking inward and trying to find solutions for the German people. So do you see Scholz as less of a European leader? We've made too many unfair, unfairly unfair amount of comparisons to Merkel, but do you see him uh, shifting inward at this time as well? I wouldn't subscribe to that. I do see Scholz as a convinced European because as a finance minister, he was also the one who said we need a Hamiltonian moment in the EU, which means, meant at that time we finally need joint debt in the European Union. That was a big step. So he does have a vision of how to develop the European Union further. He gave a speech in Prague where he laid out this vision. But in the times of crisis, and the energy crisis is acute for Germany, sometimes you're overtaken by events. And I think Germany's announcement that it would spend 200 billion euros to subsidize energy costs really shocked other European partners, because similar to Germany's exit from nuclear power a couple of years ago, they felt they've been not consulted if Germany, the big tanker in the European Union, 
takes a huge step, which will have implications not only for Germany, but also beyond Germany. Um, I think Schultz is working now on a response to that, to reassure critics that he will he also takes care of the U European Union. But I would not see him as a Germany first populist or even nationalist politician. That's absolutely not what he is. Let's talk about uh, a little bit about uh, you, you brought it up so rightly because it takes such now such a huge role gas. I mean, we've had the not, not only because of we've had this very strange bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, I guess I have two very separate questions. One is how has the Kremlin's decision to basically slow it down to a trickle? How is this affecting his policy making? Is he seen now as having to sort of put the brakes on support to Kiev? Or does this make him even more determined to accelerate support to Kiev? That's the first question. And I guess the second one, well, I'll ask the second one, but the second one's going to be about how hard will this winter really be? But I'll, we'll, we'll go to that one in a second. I don't know which one is more difficult, so I will just <laughs> pick the second one of how hard the winter will be. The good news is that Germany has bought a lot of gas on international markets. So now German storages are filled by almost 95%, which was almost impossible to imagine at the beginning of the war, also because Germany has sold some of its biggest and most important gas storage sites to Gazprom, to the Russian energy company before. So there, Germany has been quite successful in um, making sure that at least the storages are filled. It now depends on how much gas is saved in the winter, if 95% will be enough. So there will be gas, but the gas will be incredibly, incredibly expensive. And that is basically what the government is now thinking about, how to prevent that every household might have to pay three times as much as, as they've paid last winter for, for energy. And that's a huge social question, especially from a chancellor who's head of the Social Democratic Party in Germany. Your second point, has this crisis changed anything in Germany's support for Ukraine? I would say no. I would say that the brazenness with, with which Russia and Putin have attacked Germany and have attacked the European Union really has led to hardening of resolve in Germany, that these aggressive tactics have to be countered because otherwise Germany and Europe will be open to blackmail from Russia at any point. So I would not say that it has impacted Germany's policy towards Russia, but we will see probably an escalation from the Russian side in the next weeks and months. And it's unclear where the Nord Stream 2 sabotage came from, but it is suspicious that the Russian president suggested that the only functioning line of the pipeline is the Nord Stream 2 line. Nord Stream 1 is not functional, according to the Russian president. So again, this is such an obvious blackmail that it, Germany would lose so much credibility if they would fall for these Russian attempts. Um, and therefore, I do believe that Germany will get through this winter without making concessions towards Russia. That's really interesting. And you started off our conversation by saying, quote, you know, self-inflicted dependence, right, on, on Russian gas. And I, I want to 
tease that out a little bit more. I have a, a segment here on Altamar. It's talking about social justice. And I talked a lot about the private business ties of a lot of former German politicians and business leaders with Russia. And, you know, Germany's private sector is, um, it's very well known. These ties are not secret and they run very deep. So how much talk is there right now about this long list of German former private sector executives, et cetera, in Russia's economy and how that's affecting Germany's position? Indeed, after the outbreak of the war, there was a lot of finger pointing and there were a lot of questions. Well, who is responsible for the situation? And there was a lot of hot potatoes blowing around. <laughs> um, the Social Democrats were accusing Angela Merkel, the Christian Democrats, Angela Merkel's party were accusing the Social Democrats. What we don't see yet is an inquiry like a parliamentary commission or something which would really deal in depth with those issues. We might see it on um, the level of, on a federal level, because um, in the northern part of Germany, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, there has been a very close connection to Gazprom and there has been a foundation which was funded with public money to protect German companies um, and Gazprom from US sanctions, which is um, sounds already <laughs> weird just <laughs> if I just mention it, but it is a very weird story indeed, which would need um, more inquiry and parliamentary inquiry. At the moment, um, there's a feeling of, well, let's look ahead and let's try to shoulder the challenges that we um, that we will face with Russia together. But I do think it has tarnished especially Merkel's legacy as a chancellor. She was considered to be the leader of the free world. Um, she has given a few public appearances after the war where she was asked whether his, her assessments of energy policy and Russia policy were correct and where she basically insisted on that she has at least tried everything um, to uh, keep Russia from, from going into this war. But the energy question is as much a chancellery question under her leadership as it was a broader question of German politics. And perhaps that's I mean, perhaps as a last thought, perhaps that's what makes it so difficult to really go into in-depth because it was just political consensus. Apart from the Green Party, there was really no one who opposed Nord Stream 2 and who opposed this dependence on Russian gas. The benefits for the industry were just too big. Let's um, move across the ocean and talk a little bit about the relationship between Scholz and Biden. So aside from calls and very formal press releases where they demonstrate a, a agreement and consensus, there really is not a lot of information about that transatlantic relationship. Yeah, that is true. And it's also interesting if you compare it with the Merkel-Obama relationship, which was a very cordial relationship. Merkel and Obama got along very well it is also reported that it was Obama who convinced Merkel to go for a fourth term. So that was a real friendship. What we see between Biden and Scholz at the moment is a relationship of very good colleagues. That's how I would frame it. Uh, also because the character of the two of them is perhaps not too far away. They are both not emotional. They are both sober and rational. Um, I think it's good it's a relationship which is strong, but it does not have those emotional um, levels that, for instance, the relationship between Merkel and Obama had, which was a real friendship. Let's move to India and China, which um, obviously as, as, as allies of, of 
Russia have been largely silent um, on the war. They've issued some very neutral, um, really nondescript um, declarations. But recently, they've both um, called for negotiation and de-escalation. Is this a blow to Putin? Is this a message uh, about their, uh, you know, maybe waning solidarity? Well, I think India and China are very carefully balancing their position at the moment. India has very clear domestic interest for close um, domestic interest in a close relationship with Russia. Um, it depends on Russian uh, military weapon deliveries. Um, for China, Russia was always the junior partner in the past in its quest to limit U.S. influence in the world. Um, both look at Russia's war especially now that it looks like this war will be lost with a lot of concern because a Russian defeat in Ukraine would obviously have destabilizing effects um, across the region, would have de global destabilizing effects. And it would also put into question the whole model of an autocracy which aggressively tries to um, pursue its foreign policy interests, which is not too far away from what China is doing. Um, but what uh, we've seen now is that um, they have abstained from the UN General Assembly vote and uh, they call for negotiations, which I wonder and I'm skeptical whether this is a call for negotiations which is meant seriously. So negotiations which take into account Ukraine's positions and interests in as much as they take into account Russia's positions and interests or whether this is just a call for negotiations um, to save Russia's annexations and to basically freeze the war for the time being only to continue it at a later point. Um, so I'm doubtful that China and India are interested in real and serious negotiations. Let me wrap up our conversation with two sort of broader questions, which is, um, you know, we've seen in the last couple of weeks a really preoccupying both rhetorical and military escalation by Russia. We've just learned that he's appointed as uh, the new commander of the Ukraine front, the commander which devastated Syrian civilian targets um, over multiple years. How is this going to affect the EU? I mean, how, how dangerous do you see the coming months? And are you a, a pessimist or an optimist that we will in the end find a way out of this? I have to say I developed from a pessimist at the outbreak of the war to an optimist right now um, because I belong to those who uh, saw the believed the invasion was coming but who overestimated Russian abilities. Um, and now that we see the structural problems that Russia has, I just don't see how they can, can win this war in any meaningful way. But of course, not being able to win this war also has its own dangers in itself, because it means that Putin might just choose escalation going further. And he has already done so, the attempted annexations, the mobilizations. So the next step, um, and we might see some hints of that already in Europe will certainly be to expand the war not to a direct NATO-Russia conflict. Obviously, that's not in Russia's interest. It would not sustain such a conflict and it would be incredible nuclear risk. 
but it is to um, uh, conduct sabotage acts in Europe and to frighten Europe, to intimidate Europe by um, actions which are difficult to attribute cyber actions towards Europe, for instance. I think that's something that Europe has to be prepared, that the war will not only remain localized in Ukraine, but that Europe will can become a broader part of that. But in the end, it is the desperate leashing out of a dictator who is losing a war. And um, Russia losing this war is definitely more in our interest and in Ukraine's interest than it is to... Um, give him an opportunity to continue this war, to freeze this war, and to threaten other parts of Europe in the future. And I guess the last question is, you know, if you if you had the opportunity to provide Chancellor Schultz with a few minutes of advice, where would you tell him to be careful about where this conflict is going? I think what is perhaps what concerns me more than the uh, sort of the trajectory of the conflict, and there's only so much you can influence about that, is what kind of dynamics it unleashes in Europe. And we see that Germany's eastern neighbors, especially Poland and the Baltic states, are very concerned about their own security, and they don't have the impression that Germany and France, the other most important countries in Europe, are really doing everything they could for the support of Ukraine and for Poland and the Baltic states' defense. Obviously, they're doing a lot. There have been German soldiers redeployed to the Baltic states, um, French soldiers redeployed. There has been support for Ukraine. But compared to the level of support that Poland and the Baltic states give, um, it is not as much. And I think this loss of trust in Europe on the very fundamental question of are you going to stand in for your neighbors and to support your neighbors. This is something which I think has to be monitored very closely. Olaf Scholz's speech in Prague was meant to do that. He said, we need to keep Europe together and everyone should be sure that we will defend each other, we will be there for each other. But if you ask uh, Poland or citizens of Poland or of the Baltic states at the moment where they would look to for defense in a situation of crisis, they would look towards Washington. They would not look towards Paris and Berlin. Thank you, Dr. Liana Fix, for this, for this great conversation. This could go on for a lot more, and you promised us to quote some Goethe poems sometime in the middle, which we don't have time for you to do, <laughs> so we'll just have to invite you back to do that. Oh, please. Thank you very much. Thank you. We should do an entire session about um, German poets. With pleasure. Dr. Liana Fix, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. So, Peter, Teat, there's two things that really stuck with me. One, that she is more optimistic now than in the beginning. And I, and I, I wonder, like, how and why. And the second thing is, it's really remarkable that this incident, this horrible invasion of Ukraine, is shaping um, basically the unity of the European Union uh, in such a, a dramatic way. And th this is a, a group of countries that have gone through Brexit, that have really negotiated for decades on what they agree on. And right now there is a true fracture between, you know, old Europe, new Europe, if you want to be super simplistic. But it's it's something that I don't think that anybody had calculated. Well, I mean, the reason she's optimistic is because sort of 
Ukraine is winning the war and Russia's losing the war, and that makes her that makes her happy, um, as it makes me happy. And so um I think that that's part of the reason for her optimism. I I um I think the press has underreported what she points out to be the extreme preoccupation of the Baltic states and Poland, probably, you know, the Czech Republic and and Slovakia as well. I mean, of of the Eastern European Union members. Uh, I think it's been underreported, this preoccupation that Germany and France aren't in this wholeheartedly, full, totally, 100%, and that there's this latent mistrust that if the going would get any tougher, these guys are bolting, and that they're looking at Washington versus versus uh, versus. Uh, Berlin or Paris. I, th- I thought that was fascinating, and that's not something that I have seen before in in the press. I agree with all of that. I I, I did find it interesting. She was optimistic um, because you know her analysis of what's happening to Europe and the dynamics that are playing out are certainly giving me reason for more pessimism than optimism about what this means for Europe's unity for real and um, where that's going. For a minute, I thought we were all agreeing. So that was very, very surprised. So I'm, I'm relieved <laughs> well, to know that we don't. <laughs> um, so so that's one. And then the second part was on, um, you know, my, my take today was, you know, all about Germany's private sector ties. And I felt, you know, she, she sort of there wasn't really an answer on it, right? I mean, it was like, oh, yes, well, you know, there's not really done much. There was a little bit of finger pointing in the beginning, but we're kind of over it. And um, that I find that fascinating because that's something that I, as a German, certainly wouldn't be get over very easily um, if I were a German. I'm not. Um, but with that, I will invite you all to listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. Um, also sign up for a biweekly free newsletter, which is very cool and gives you an analysis on global trends. And we will see you next time.